Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Now, many of you have loved the crossover events that we've done before. The Devil Palooza with N.T. Wright, Beck, Greg Boyd. Many of you love the Rob Bell, Richard Beck crossover event or event. One that really started it all was the Newsworthy Games. The Holy Spirit versus Harvard. Chris versus <laughs> Pete Enns. And so you know what? The people have said we want more of Dr. Chris Green and Dr. Pete Enns, so we're going to give it to him. But we're not going to do another Newsworthy Games. This one is The Revenant. Now, I know a lot of you love this movie, but for some of you, it's too much. I get it. The movie was a bit of a bear. But what <laughs> is we're having, obviously, the DiCaprio character is the world's not just smartest Pentecostal, best dressed Pentecostal, Chris Green. So welcome, Chris. Hey, good to be here. <laughs> and super impressive on the Revenant connection. You like that? And, yeah, then a, I- and the bloodthirsty, thirsty, rugged, will do anything to win character of Tom Hardy <laughs> is, of course, played by our friend, Pete Enns. All right, Pete. Thank you, Luke. <laughs> Thank you. And, of course, I guess I have to be the bear in this. So uh, let's just... Let's just do- Guys, this is really uh, a follow-up. It's a Twitter conversation. People said they loved what you were doing at Praxis. You guys said you enjoyed the conversation between you two, and you wanted more of it. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to give the people what they want, what they want. More Chris Green, more Pete Enns. Shall we begin? It is, man. You're a public servant. People want what the people want. You know what? Who are we to judge? All we're to do is to serve. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to serve. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you guys had this conversation. Um, You guys hadn't met the first time we had a podcast with you two together in person. You hadn't met before, right? Right. No, we hadn't met. That was the first time we met in, um, in New York back in June, yeah. Hmm. The first time you ever talked was on the podcast, right? Right. Oh, so this is kind of like uh, your friendship anniversary in some ways. Sort of. <laughs> yes, yes. You're this imagining. getting weird, Chris. How do you, how do you do it? It's getting weird. Yeah, I think this is... I think Luke's got a hard job. Somebody's having to in the interval. Luke's lonely. <laughs> exactly. Guys, I, I haven't been preaching the entire month, so I have a lot of talking to do. And I don't it. have an outlet for it, so that's what this is. I, I know. The byproduct of it. Okay, so you guys discussed, uh, obviously, how to read the Bible. That was a big part of your conversation at practice. practice. And uh, I think we should just jump right into that. You guys good with that? Yeah, sure. I'm, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. Hey. A bunch of stuff. Hey, I'm the, I'm the bear. I'm the one who, who brings this narrative along. So you don't worry about it. You just play your part, and I'll keep the conversation okay. going. Okay. okay so l- yeah. <laughs> Let's start with uh, the Old Testament and how we're supposed to read the Old Testament. Um, so there's a question. Do we read the Old Testament the same way that the apostles would read that? So Chris, why don't we start with you on that question? Yeah. Well, this, this may connect us to practice. I know that at one point, if I remember rightly, Brian, Zahn, and I, and Pete were on a panel together. I don't remember who else was on that panel. I think Sarah Bessie was, mm-hmm. and maybe Stephanie Spellers. I, I can't remember exactly. I think that's right. I think that's right, yeah. But Brian had said something in his, in his way about Jesus saving us from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. 
And I had responded to that by saying that I think that this is a crucial issue for us. I mean, obviously you've got the, the, the classic arguments about whether or not we, well, Montanists called heresy and all that business, but just more basically the question of does Jesus and does his reading in the apostles reading of the old Testament do violence to the old Testament text or not? Okay. And if, if they're violating what the old Testament text wants to say, you know, to put it in Brian's phrasing, if they're saving us from the old Testament, then what does that say about the old Testament as scripture, as word of God to us? Mm-hmm. And what I would want to say theologically you know, standing where I stand theologically, I would want to find some way of saying no. The Jesus that Jesus and the apostles are are telling us what the Old Testament has always wanted to say, but couldn't say because of unfaithful readings, mm-hmm. or couldn't say in full because of unfaithful readings. So, if we're going to put it in some kind of pithy statement, it'd be something more like Jesus saves the Bible from us. Mm-hmm. Know, so, and, and that and Pete had jumped in at that point too. So, I mean, that started as a conversation with, with Brian and me. But, okay, so before we jump to Pete on this, explain to us how um, Jesus or the apostles or others might be violating the Old Testament in the way they read it. How, how would they be hurting the Old Testament in, in this way for someone who's never really heard this conversation before? And they hear you say, oh, this is doing violence or violating. What does that even mean? Well, obviously, there, there are at least a couple of different ways to come at this. I mean, one is, so Richard Hayes has written about, I think this is a pretty, pretty, apt example about how in Romans, Paul references this text in the Old Testament where Moses says, you know, the law is not in, don't say it's in heaven. It's not above you. It's not beneath you. It's near you. It's even in your mouth. Yeah. Chapter 10. Yeah. yeah Romans 10. Right. And, and Hayes says, you know, in context, it seems that the point is, I think that's Deuteronomy. Yeah. Yeah. That, 31. Yeah. That this For is, sure. this, it seems to be that the, the, the text is saying, it's not impossible to keep this law that's just been delivered to you. So, you know, so the, the whole law that Moses has just recited to Israel, this is a keepable law. Like it's mm-hmm. observable. You can live it. It's not far away from you. But that Paul reimagines what the text is actually saying and says that it's, it's the, the, the word that's in your mouth is the word of faith in Jesus Christ as the, the tell us of the law. Mm-hmm. And that, it, you know, and, and Hayes talks about how he's scandalized by the way that Paul has handled this text. And I don't think he uses the language of violence there, but he does suggest that Paul is making the text say something markedly different from what the text just says in terms of how meaning works. Yeah. Right? But what I, I find, and I'm, I'm really influenced by, by a lot of quote-unquote postmodern critiques of that hermeneutic that would say, but maybe we're making assumptions about how meaning works that we shouldn't be making hmm. right? that, that are controlling the narrative in terms of how, how we talk about the way these apostles read the old Testament. Right. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a long history that Pete knows even better than I do. I'm sure about evangelicals and their break from the way the apostles read the old Testament. So you, you know, you have, and I was taught, this actually, frankly, um, that the apostles could read the Old Testament that way because they were the apostles, but we better not. No. <laughs> that no. we read grammatical historically, grammatically historically, and <clears throat> leave it at that. Like we don't dare do the kind of 
quote unquote spiritual exegesis that they're doing because that'll yeah. lead us into the to the weeds. So you know that's one way of talking about the violence. You're assuming a certain theory of meaning, and that the apostles are not letting the text say what the text plainly say. They're making them say something else. Yeah, making them say something else is the violence part. Gotcha. But fascinatingly, Calvin does use the language of violence when he talks about John's reading of Isaiah. And you know, in so John twelve, he says that Isaiah saw the Lord. Mm-hmm. Suggesting that he saw Jesus, the, the glory of Jesus, and Calvin to, uses the language of violence to say, clearly that's not what Isaiah six is about, and yet it is in some way, right? Yeah. So that there is, it's a very, it's at, at least from that time, right? There's been this suspicion in the tradition that apostolic readings of the Old Testament are forcing the text to say things the text doesn't really say. Yeah. And for me, that's a critical theological point. Okay, so Pete, let's, let's have you jump in right there. We, I know that, uh, that uh, we've talked about the language of fast and loose. Some way it seemed like the New Testament authors are playing fast and loose with the Old Testament. Uh, how, how are you hearing all this? Well, you know, I think... Um, I, mean, I don't. First of all, I don't like the language of like doing violent texts. I think yeah. we have to think of different language than that, yeah. um, because you know you put. Uh, and Chris alluded to this. You put apostolic or New Testament use of the Old Testament into that broader Second Temple context, which begins within the Old Testament itself. You know, creative readings are you could make a very good argument for our creative readings that sort of detach from the mooring of grammatical historical interpretation or have been common and, and accepted and, and not judged as being wrong uh, since a very, very early time. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I appreciate you know, the, you know, Chris's comment about the postmodern critique, and I think that's important. Um, I wonder, though, if on one level we can maybe sort of say that on a grammatical historical level, reading, you know, reading Deuteronomy and what we read then in Romans 10, which is a creative rehandling of that text. I mean, there's no question. It's not it's not saying what that text in context is saying, if I can just be that blunt. I mean, that's. The, the, the point of um, all this back in Deuteronomy is that, listen, Israel, the law is right in front of you. You don't have to go across the sea to get it, which Paul changes to the abyss, which means like the abode of the dead. But I think that's a Septuagint thing, but leaving that, I, I'm not sure about that, I seem to recall. But, uh, you know, it's, you don't have to go far off. It's right here in front of you. And, it, and it, it is, it's not like it's not impossible to keep the law. They're committed to keep it, and you can. It's right here. What's wrong with you people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Paul, writing from a different circumstance, which is the, uh, you know, if I can say the surprised ending of the death and resurrection of Christ, is reshaping the Old Testament around a different center. And, yeah. you know, we can talk uh, a good long time about whether that's tied to the meaning of the book of Deuteronomy in a grammatical historical sense, I would say it's not. Um, but the other option is not violence or um, um, 
gee, willy nilly, we can do anything. It, it's 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 yeah. a little yeah. complicated than that. Exactly. I think it's a highly theological reading on Paul's part. Yeah, that I think no Jew would have said, "Hey, you're not doing grammatical historical interpretation. You're right. wrong." Right. It's more what Paul is is creatively adapting a text for, which is a you know, a Christ-centered reading. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's why you know I keep, I try to keep my eyes open for these kinds of things. And you see, it's not only that, but I mean, just not not to focus on Romans and too much, but it seems like Paul is even pitting Deuteronomy against Leviticus in that chapter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which again is not unheard of in antiquity, where you yeah. sort of parts of Torah debating each other, right? Yeah. It's a yep. Jewish move, and I think we have to appreciate that and to see what theological energy can we get from that dynamic in, in that we're seeing actually in Scripture. And that, to me, that's a big conversation. I don't have, like, a final word on that. I just, I just want people to sort of go down the right path for the most fruitful discussion, not to try to salvage, let's say, not to take a cheap shot, but not to salvage an evangelical hermeneutic and heaven help us, we've got to get Paul into that, you know, restrictive sort of yeah. box. That yeah. will not work. That's impossible. But yeah. you have to counter-read the Bible in order to get to that, in my opinion. Yeah, and, uh, and I'm with you there. And I, just to be clear here, I'm, I'm not suggesting that... I'm going to be, how do I want to say this exactly? When I say doing violence to the text, I think that's, in, that's a kind of creation of people who are trying to make yes absolutely yeah everything fit a grammatical historical reading mm-hmm. like right. they're it's, yeah. a, it's a false problem really right it's a pro- right. problem forced by assumptions about hermeneutics that just don't actually do justice to the complexity of the christian right. tradition the Jewish and, I th- and i think what we have there chris i mean i know you understand this luke doesn't so i might have to say it really slowly here but um <laughs> I, I do, in my opinion, because where I sort of come from, where my training is in education stuff, I think what we have here is is we're trying to have sort of a synthetic discussion between the matrix of Judaism during the mm-hmm. second period and the afterlife of that in the Christian tradition. Absolutely, yeah. Time. And that yeah. that is like that's an exciting topic. It's also mm-hmm. a very complicated one, yeah. you know. And I, I see some things in the second and third century that make, make me think they just forgot the Jewishness of all this stuff, mm-hmm. and they're just doing weird Greek stuff. But it's much more complicated than that too, you know. I mean, because because yeah. the thing is that if see, if what we're seeing in the New Testament and in early Judaism and in the second temple texts of the Old Testament, like Chronicles, if what we're seeing them doing is transforming tradition in light of current realities, right? Um, and the New Testament is, is transforming the Old Testament, their scripture in light of the present realities of Jesus and all that. Um, that, that process continues through the history of Judaism on their side and the history of Christianity on our side. Mm. So, you know, to, to sort of, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, I want to sort of maintain the importance of how all this started in antiquity with the Second Temple Matrix. But at the other hand, it's the most natural thing to see for Christians of later generations at different places with different concerns, different audiences, transforming the message yet again into a different idiom, which gave us things like creeds and complicated Greek words. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that are with philosophy. See, yeah. I, I just think that that's, that's unavoidable. So you know, I'm more interested in trying to explore what that trajectory is, what it looks like, mm-hmm. rather than delimiting 
these are good readings and this is a violent yeah. reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 This doesn't help me. I just don't know what to do with that. It's too simplistic. Gotcha. Okay, so Chris, so the, for the person who's hearing all this talk about Pagan Temple Judaism who, who needed lexicon to translate that down to meaning that's just the time of Jesus and uh, around that, like that's the, the, the context for this. And they're trying to understand, okay, so the Old Testament writers are writing one thing. The New Testament writers um, are interpreting through the lens of Jesus, are now being able to see the Old Testament differently. So they're going to they're gonna interpret it ways that the Old Testament authors didn't. Uh, didn't. How, how do they understand that? Like how can average person that you're preaching to, because you're not just a, a professor, you're also a preacher. When you're explaining this to them, they're going, I, I still don't get why, I'm, you know, Paul will reference something in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. It doesn't seem to fit in the context of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And your answer to them is what? Yeah, so I, this is, this is, I think, the crucial, for me at least, in this discussion. Is I think a lot of the people that I've grown up with and a lot of my students now, the churches where I worship, people think they're in love with scripture, but what they're really in love with is a theory of meaning and a, a way of interpreting not just biblical text, but any text, the world, their lives, that is simple and replicable and anything that challenges that theory of meaning and the simple hermeneutics that attends it, they're troubled by. And part of the power of it is that it's so closely allied. It seems to be for them, a love for God, a love for scripture, a love for truth. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually coded that way. That's part of the reason that these conversations are so explosive. But I think the reason that people you know, keep, forcing Pete into conversations about this or me into conversations about this is that people affectionately are engaged because of love of God, love of scripture or whatever. That's, that's at least at the surf, surface level. Well, what's going underneath that is a sense of, well, if, if the way that I'm interpreting is wrong, then how do I know anything is true? You know, I lose purchase on, on reality at every hand. And that what, what's, what the conversation is really about is how do I know that if you're telling me that this way of reading is wrong, then what do I do? And what does that say about how I've read scripture in the past and how I've preached and taught other people? You know, so, you know it's one of those, I have a colleague, Ricky Moore, who, who reminds me of this often, and I think he's right, that whatever conversation we're having, like really what's operating under that conversation are hurts and wounds and fears yeah. that are, you know deeply pastoral and personal that are shaping what's happening at the surface and that you know there's no purely academic conversation between yeah. people have you heard that uh, like all theology is autobiographical yeah yeah you know, exactly we're, we're all working out stuff and so i think you're right like you tear you you tear apart um someone's way of reading and all of a sudden they don't know anything that's left now, now pete seems to replace that with what he calls um, this completely made up word that somehow got published, uh, this Christocentric way of reading. Um, I think Harper one was just like on an off day or something. The English language can't capture what I'm trying to That's say. That's right. I have to make up words. Several <laughs> yes. Times. It's yes. unbelievable. It's so hard being me. Anyway, keep going. So, so does normal consciousness. I hate you so much, Luke. I hate you so much. Anyway, go ahead. Hey, hey, hate is, 
is very close to love. It's just, it's, it's yeah. close. Um, so, you know, he has this fabricated word called Christocentric. So that's, it, that really is a simple answer. Like you just say, everything is read through the lens of Jesus. You know, our friend Brian well, Zahn. No, see, that's that simple. That's the beginning of discussion as far as I'm concerned, not the end of it. Right. And um, I think, you know what, I mean, everything Chris just said, I agree with. I mean, I think it is about people's lives and their narratives and um, what, how they make sense of everything that they think about, you know, themselves, God, the world, their place in it. And I think that's, that is, that is a point. And, and unfortunately, um, this, uh, I, I probably want to think about this a little bit more, but it strikes me as that's much more of a modern problem the way yes. it's posed yeah. now. And I do think we're still sort of um, laboring under sort of objectivist, modernist enlightenment. I know we're throwing these terms around and they're easy to criticize people who haven't been around for a few years for causing all this mess. But I do think <laughs> that uh, we're, we're still dealing with if it's true, it's got to be clear. It's got to be consistent. I have to be able to understand it. And if anything, these kinds of discussions always drive me to a place not of despair, because I don't control the Bible like I thought I did, but it actually drives me to seek that meaning in something other than hermeneutical method. Yeah, right. Which that, be- I think that's the thing to get people to that point, I think yes. is pastorally very helpful. Okay. But, but some people are swimming in this like unknowing of, okay, this has been pulled away. Uh, I, I don't know what to go to next. And so you said point them to something bigger than your interpretive lens or your way of finding me. Finding me. What is that? Give, give me an example of something that we can go to. Well, before, I, again, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Okay, Chris, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say, I think the first move is, to resist the kind of impulse that says, I always need to have a technology that makes the Bible useful to me. And I think there is a time to just come to terms with the fact that that's what I've actually been taught, that what I was actually taught is here's some technology, uh, hermeneutic, that will make the Bible useful for you. Yeah. And that when, when I started to lose that, I mean, you know, you know, cases like Bart Ehrman or others who lose their faith over these issues. Like for me, that's never really about losing faith in God. It's always about if, if you're oriented to the world to use the Bible in a certain way, and then you lose the ability to do that. Yeah. For some people that's panic, but I don't think it should be. I, I don't think right. it should be. It, there shouldn't be anything about that. Even if it's disoriented, it shouldn't be despairing to go use the language that he just used. And that the, yeah. before we start talking about, well, then what do we do? I think we need a kind of basic reorientation that says maybe the Bible isn't useful in any way. Like maybe that's, I mean, maybe hold on, not hold on. technology. My, my church is going to catch on fire. If it comes through <laughs> my headphones that you just said, the Bible isn't useful. You clearly don't mean that in the way that normal people are going to hear that. What? It, it, take a of second. Of course he doesn't look. So I'm trying to start an argument. I'm not. Tr- I'm giving him a chance to explain so that the Twitterverse I'm doesn't. I'm already getting hate mail, and this, yes. this, this podcast is not really. Can I'm I helping you, Chris. Can I? Can I interpret Chris? So, because I don't care if I get hate mail. Um, but <laughs> the way the it, you get. So people, so you pull the rug out from under them. They have a way of reading the Bible that they're used to that makes sense of things, and now they're saying I can't do that. So the question is: This is the way you put it, Chris. What do I do? My mm. answer is: You don't do anything. Yeah, right. that technique with another technique right. you step back a little bit and you say again I don't I don't mean this as sort of a, a cheap shot it sounds sort of like a, a slam dunk kind of argument but 
we make we do make idols out of our mental constructions. I do it all the time. It's we're constantly creating God in our own image, and I think some of our hermeneutical methods are things along the journey that are helpful and important and even necessary that bring us to a certain point. But at some point, we have to take that backpack off yep. without one, but keep walking. How, how do I know whether to walk if I don't know the Bible is blah, 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 blah. Well, maybe, again, I'm not going to give you another technique. Maybe you have to learn to trust God, even when the Bible makes no sense to you. Yep. The Bible is not the pathway to God. The Spirit of God is the pathway. It's this is naked sort of encounter with God that I think makes people very uncomfortable. We want to control it through, I know that I'm right because here's the text in front of me and I can exegete it. And it's, it, it's three easy steps. First of all, understand what the author meant in his original context. Second of all, you know, apply it to your yeah. life. I mean, that's, that's, oh, if it were that easy. Yeah, and it's dehumanizing anyway. I mean, the thing that strikes me about it is not only does it not actually work, like insofar as it does work, it flattens our sense of judgment. You know, it narrows our imaginations. I mean, I, I don't like what it does to me. Right. It's doing the work that it can do, much less the yeah. work it can do. You know, like... I, Chris, this is why you're a closet liberal. You just <laughs> use the word imagination to talk about the Bible. How dare you? God doesn't care about your stupid imagination. He wants you to be absolutely sure and right. Mm-hmm. But, I don't well, know where you get this stuff from. Of course, everybody out there in, in podcast land, I am kidding. That's my dry, <laughs> East Coast, slightly condescending sense of humor. Don't, um, don't, don't blame that on being East Coast. That's just you. <laughs> well, all my friends, you should see my high school, we're all like this. But, um, you okay, know, that's I, the I, second thing. We don't believe you have friends either, so that's not good. I do. I have four, okay. um, <laughs> including the internet. But uh, no, I, I think imagination is a big word, and because and, um, imagination takes us out of our own little silly lives where we think we see everything correctly and perfectly. And, and, I, and I think I, I find it to be a pleasant irony that reading the Bible forced you into that situation, decentering the Bible as that anchor that's going to give you that certainty and that theological um, structure that's impermeable. Reading the Self-deconstructs that. Yep, absolutely. I completely agree. No, no. What does it mean by deconstructing the Bible? No, it's not deconstructing the Bible. It's deconstructing our uses of it. Trying to use it's deconstructing it for people. That's what I meant. Yeah. So. Okay. So uh, we've realized that the Bible is uh, not this document that we can. Uh, we can use with our technology to give us the answers, the answers that we want. And so now that we're going to have to use imagination, what if we're scared that our imagination doesn't give us the parameters to stay orthodox or true or faithful to what God wants us to do? What do we use as the buffer from, for preventing us from going AWOL? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. And that's the kind of question we could spend two hours talking about, but um, I think what's behind that question, Luke, is still maintaining that old paradigm mm-hmm. of I, there's, a, there's a system, there's, there's a technique that I can use to make sure that I am where I am. And um, I mean, th- these are things that I, I need to do a lot more living through and thinking about. But 
I, I've read recently, you know, many people, not the least of which is Richard Rohr, talking about how what the West is missing, what the Christian West is missing, is truly a sense of mystery and and the not knowing of God, not simply here's how I know, right? Mm-hmm. And sitting with those tensions and 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 creating cultures in churches where people understand that's a normal part of the process. Sometimes you feel more certain, sometimes less certain, but that's just the way it's going to be. And again, read the Bible, read the Psalms. I mean, this is, this is, read Ecclesiastes, read Job, Lamentations, read all these texts that show us how complicated and how untamed and unsheltered this journey of faith is. Yeah. And, and, and I think that drives you to communion with God very differently. Hmm. Okay, so Chris, were you going to go? Because I was going to ask you about the sacraments now. Well, I mean, I, I want to talk about the sacraments, but I, I do want to say, I mean, I, not to be that guy, but I mean, I think what Pete and I are saying here is you have to have a much more radical reinterpretation of the Christian life yeah. to make sense of, of, of at least, I think what, what's happened to Pete and me personally. Here's where our autobiographies come into the story, no pun intended. I mean, that he, our, our ways of living the Christian life have changed as our ways of grappling with Scripture have changed. Mm-hmm. What you can't do is simply make a couple of tweaks, technological adjustments on your hermeneutics without changing that larger. I mean, what we're saying right. won't make sense if the right. whole way of living the Christian life doesn't alter in some way. And I, I right. think when you to think about your grasp of the truth as the basis for your relationship with God seems to me to be cut right against the grain of the gospel. It's not my, I, my faith isn't rooted in my grasp of the truth. Right. There's even this line in Paul where he, I think it's in Galatians where he says, you know, God or better are known by God, right? That, mm-hmm. that I'm held in faith. You know, I, I don't right. have faith because I've thought my way through all the problems that are relevant and arrived at a conclusion that justifies right. my belief in God. I mean, I believe in yeah. God because the Spirit has claimed me for God. Right. And my faith is now seeking understanding as I grapple with these texts and so on. So, I mean, I think there's a, a kind of hyper-individualist, you know, I forgive the, the jargon here, but there's a kind of hyper-individualist and self-justifying way of thinking of Christian life where the Bible is useful and my grasp of the Bible becomes the root of my faith that mm-hmm. we have to uproot totally. It isn't just about helping people solve a couple of problems. Like that is an unfaithful way of being, being believer. And that, that's that we have to confront. Yeah. I think it's, it's people's experiences that are the first things. Something has to happen to people experientially first before yeah. They can see the value in this kind of conversation. You know, I, I engage, um, you know, comments on my blog on a regular basis from, you know, well-meaning people, but who, who do have a different paradigm. And they're, they're still sort of in that mode of reading the Bible. This is the foundation of truth. And I have to understand it. And this is how it goes. And you just cast doubt on that. So how can I believe anything else? I'm saying... Yeah. I, I don't even I can't even answer that question because I don't accept the premise upon what yeah. built. Yeah. Right. So but that you can't really handle those things in comments on a blog. But you know that that is what it is and oftentimes it's not something that can be corrected through a a different kind of analytical process. I think it's corrected through 
life experiences, uh, usually some suffering, but other things like just community engagement or whatever, I mean, church community engagement, whatever, but it's through experiences that lead you then to analyze your life differently, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. the analysis follows the experience. It's not the foundation for the experience. Yeah, it, it seems like there's a reoccurring theme of people who embrace the disorientation and they get some reorientation on the other side is that there is suffering always involved and there's letting go of ways of relating to God, to God, except that they don't work anymore, but you somehow find that there is something on the other side that is sustainable for you. Yeah. Right. I, I cut you off. Oh, you? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I want to layer in a complication here, and that is, I think right now we're mostly talking about devotional readings of Scripture. I do think there is a kind of doctrinal reading of Scripture belongs to the church as a whole. That's mm-hmm. That does require a bit more discipline and care. But for me at the devotional level, per people's reading of scripture, you know, we, we go back to one of the basic insights of Augustine. If it leads you to love God and love neighbor, it's a good devotional reading. What, whatever you're doing with it, like that's, that's it's the Bible is functioning. Well, when your reading of scripture is, is opening you up to love of God and love of neighbor. Now I think we could, if we wanted to have an entirely different discussion about how does the church make doctrinal mm-hmm. ethical decisions as a sure. community and how does scripture factor there? I think that's an entirely different conversation from the one we're having here. And I just want to layer that. Yeah. I mean, the, I don't want this right. to turn into kind of an, another form of kind of a privatized individual use of right. the Bible. It's just with different ends to me we're you know, the church's responsibility to read is different from my devotional life with scripture. Right. And I never want to, collapse those two. They're related. But right. they're and, and welcome to the history of the church that has been trying exactly. to work out exactly. I mean, one thing when I teach hermeneutics to my undergraduate students, it's a history of Christian interpretation. Actually, we start with Chronicles, but we move a history of Christian interpretation simply to show that there is not one method that has worked. I mean, there, there are different ways of accessing the Bible, and they're legitimate. And if your way of accessing it falls apart, that doesn't mean the journey has come to an end. You might just have to take another one or take a turn, keep walking and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and it's the problem when we, when we sort of um, create expectations of the Bible that it's going to solve all my personal questions and problems and make it, um, you know, uh, uh, this rule book that I use, you know, I use that term a lot and the, the Bible tells me so. But mm-hmm. I, I think you're right too, Chris, is that there is, let's say, there are parameters and there are obligations on the part of the church on the, in a bigger sense to say, listen, how is scripture informing and even delimiting the Christian faith? Right. And that's, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's as inescapable as all the other stuff I think we're talking about. Absolutely. But that decision I think gets made. I mean, it obviously depends if you're only Catholic and it's made by the magisterium, you know, there, it depends on which tradition you're speaking from, but as a project, right. I, I see that as, a decision that's made by the church as a whole, usually over decades, if not centuries. You know, we right. were talking about a much longer conversation. Right. right. Like the issue of women's ordination, for example. I mean, I think the church has been historically wrong about that. Yeah. And that, that you know, if a thousand years from now, you know, I think Christians will be agreed about that, that we will have, right. we will have repented of that and come to a place where we see, and it took us a really long time to see it, but this is where we should have been all along. 
But that's mm-hmm. a that's a different handling of scripture than anything I could manage on my own devotionally. Right, of course. So, yeah, Give me the, the brief difference of, of how you're approaching that. Uh, your devotional reading and then, okay, we want to engage with, you know, what Paul said to Timothy and what's going on with, you know, other Pauline writings about that. How, how are we engaging that differently? I, I know we don't have a short bit of time left, but give me a synopsis of the difference of how you read those two things. I was asked the question again. I'm not sure I understood you. Well, okay. You said there's a difference of how you would do the text with uh, an issue like that compared to like your own devotional reading. Did oh, yeah. Yeah. Give me a brief synopsis of, of the difference of those two ways of engaging the text for, for the two different ends you're looking for. So I think let's, if we're talking about women's ordination, for instance, you've got all these texts, some of which seem to out and out, I mean, at least the way they've been read yeah. in evangelical tradition and in some way in, in Catholic tradition, is that they just prohibit women from having priestly role, you know, that yeah. women cannot speak in a church in these ways. And what I'm suggesting is that I think the church has been wrong in those readings, that, that in the long run, what we will see is that those other texts have been silenced to let those texts have voice and that the church, you know, it really what's controlled this are patriarchal assumptions about gender and sexuality that have controlled the text, the way we've read the text. I, mean. mm-hmm. I think that will shift over time. I think the spirit will lead us into truth as a community. Yeah. But, my reading of, say, 1 Corinthians 12 with women's head coverings or 1 Corinthians 14 and let the women be silent, all I can do is speak from my, what the text seems to say to me out of my knowing of God and neighbor and offer that to the church and say, listen, this is what seems plain to me. And then trust that the Spirit is using that reading in the long run to convince the whole church. And what has to, I mean, Robert Jensen says this about the New Testament. He says, it's not that the apostles accept the Old Testament. It's the other way around. That the apostles read the Old Testament in ways that the Old Testament accepted their reading. Like they were able to say, it's creative, it's not what you expected, but look, these texts are saying these things. Mm-hmm. And the community bought it. A community said, you know what, you're right. That is what the text is saying. Yeah. And that, that's what has to happen at the church level. People have to see, our readings have to be persuasive at that level. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, gentlemen, um, we've got to run. Uh, Pete, I believe, has an appointment where he's going to go burn down a Christian bookstore or what he's going to do. Uh, but uh, Chris, we appreciate it as always. Uh, Pete, um, it sounds like we're going to be together at an event, Pepperdine, next May, and I hope to correct all your theology at that session. Um, but until then, thanks as always, Pete. Thanks, Chris. Pete, it's great talking with you as always. Same here, Chris. See you guys. You do the bear well. See you, man. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.